Well, subjects like this are the kind of subjects that we are going to cover when it comes to Christ and culture dealing with what is happening in the world, not just politically and culturally, but even as all of those things implicate morality, spirituality, and the overall worldview issue. It's topics like this that really require a Christian response. Obviously, people know that in Canada, we are dealing with a government in a situation, uh, a level of, of liberalism and uh, political oppression. We saw that during the COVID uh, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, where they were shutting everything down, everybody down, shutting churches down, arresting pastors. But to illustrate that we are living in a culture of death, Canada recently announced a news website off the press connecting us to Slay News, talking about what's going on in Canada right now with the subject of euthanasia. If it's not bad enough that Canada wants to put to death older people that they regard to be no longer worthy of living, Canada is now moving to euthanizing infants and children. If it couldn't get any worse, you think of the barbaric direction that this government is going into, and your mind just kind of shudders to think of all of the many implications of that, the possibilities of that, and sort of sort of the slippery slope uh, you know, type of thinking that will flow directly from a precedent, like saying all of a sudden that parents can now determine whether or not their child's life is viable based on certain uh, issues that they see in their child's life, making that child no longer worthy of having somebody advocate for them, fight for them, or let alone giving them personal human rights to live. Simply staggering. That's what we're going to look at today. Welcome to the program, everybody. Well, my name is Emilio Ramos, another episode of Christ and Kingdom, and uh, so, so excited to cover this subject because we haven't done anything on culture for a while, and I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to speak to where our culture is on a subject that is so critical, so important, and something that as Christians, we need to be ready to confront, we need to be ready to respond to, and we need to wrap our mind around whether or not life is worth living. And at every stage of the human life, why is it that we fight for life? Why is it that we assign dignity to life? Why is it that we assign value and worth to human life at every stage from conception until you take your last breath? Of course, that's rooted in, in our biblical theology. But with this law, all of a sudden, we are confronted with another layer to all of this, that the world that w- in which we live, the West, the Western culture in particular, with its many atrocities, whether that has to do with abortion or euthanizing people who just feel like they need to be euthanized for reasons that are less than acceptable, now we are talking about parents making an awful choice on behalf of their children 
and having the state to back them up. This article appeared on slaynews.com. Canada uh, planning to euthanize infants is gaining support. Really remarkable. In this article, in this uh, this news article here, uh, Frank Bergman, who wrote this, uh, wrote uh, the slippery slope consequences of thinking about uh, progressive ideas in expanding and enlarging the application of euthanasia to children. This is what he wrote as he opens up the article. Canada's medical assistance in dying laws allow almost anyone who can claim some sort of hardship or disability to receive physician-assisted suicide regardless of how minor those disabilities may be. I mean, just think about what that entails. Anyone that encounters any kind of hardship or disability that they deem to be too much for them to handle can go to their doctor, can request suicide, physician-assisted suicide as a way to escape all of these hardships and disabilities, no matter how minor those disabilities might be. I mean, this is, uh, if we're not living in a culture of death, I don't know what a culture of death is, because we are now perfecting the culture of death. Matter of fact, in the article, uh, Frank uh, Bergman goes on to say that in a recent report, there was a terrible story, he says, from the Associated Press of a man by the name of Alan Nichols, 61 years old. He was successfully killed after a quick one-month waiting period as he was suffering from hearing loss. And aside from bouts of depression over his hearing, other than that, Alan Nichols was otherwise healthy. Now think about that for a second. I don't know about you, but I have always faced some kind of physical malady in my life. I mean, recently I had a bout with a tailbone issue where I had fallen, I hit my tailbone on the concrete, and at the moment I didn't think it was a big deal, but a few weeks later when tailbone pain was not going away, all of a sudden I realized something is wrong. Well, you know, that tailbone pain was debilitating because when it came to studying the Bible and preparing sermons and studies and things like that, you know, part of that is sitting a lot, <laughs> and you're strapped to your desk, and you can't get up because you're, you're, you're doing heavy exegesis. And therefore, you then have to wonder, what are you going to do? How are you going to live like this? How is this going to go on? Well, all of a sudden, you start getting really uh, discouraged because the pain is not going away. It's getting worse. There's things that are happening. Okay, whatever. Here's the problem. That tailbone pain, as I went on to read article after article after article, because when you get desperate, you start jumping on Google, trying to figure out what's wrong with you, how to get over it, and procedures, and I did. I went and various doctors, and, and eventually I got to the place where some, some doctors helped me to the point where it is now completely manageable, praise God, and I can live my life. But 
Some of those articles were absolutely horrifying. People that had gone into full depression, people that had been on antidepressants and were completely downcast, completely depressed, forced to the point where they would force surgeries to try to correct that problem. And they and, and obviously many of them came out worse than they were when they went in. I mean, this is the kind of thing that can easily lead somebody down the path of terrible, dark depression. And we are now being told by physicians that something like that easily qualifies for killing yourself instead of living with the pain and overcoming that pain and trying to uh, mitigate that pain in some way. That's what happened with Alan Nichols. He's suffering hearing loss. He goes in a bout of depression, and they kill him because of that. I mean, it's amazing. But if the story couldn't get any worse... And exposing what we are now living in, in terms of our culture and Western civilization, his own brother, as the article goes on to point out, his own brother claims that the doctors actually railroaded Nichols and, 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 and sort of pressured him into killing himself. The article says Nichols' family said that the hospital staff helped him request euthanasia and pushed him to do it, quote, that's a direct quote, a story that has been repeated many times by others, by other disabled or sick Canadians. I mean, did you hear what that family member said? They said that their brother basically went to the hospital, the doctors who are looking at a condition of hearing loss, we're not even dealing with a condition that really causes physical pain. Sure, it reduces the quote-unquote quality of your life. Sure, hearing loss is not a joke. He hearing loss is nothing to, uh, it it's, it it's nothing to make light of. I mean, hearing loss is terrible. I remember when I was having problems with, with, uh, with my hearing, not so much with my hearings, but I was just getting almost like vertigo-type symptoms, and there was popping in my ears, and uh, it's just terrible. And yes, it can, it can just drive you mad if you don't get a solution. But these doctors immediately went to the issue of killing yourself because you can't hear, and the fact that Canadians are reporting that that is just a, that's a common occurrence, apparently, where you walk in and you have some kind of issue going on, but instead of trying to mitigate it with some kind of, uh, you know, some, some kind of therapeutic application of medicine, uh, they immediately forced this individual or coerced this individual into choosing to die. But now, again, as if this story could not get any worse, Canadians are turning on their own children as they look on euthanasia as a humane way of dealing with human suffering, any quality of life that is less than ideal for a child, a parent, now is going to make the decision to end their child's life prematurely, which constitutes murder. This, um, this article here goes on to say, a, rep a report from the National Post reveals that some parents are already asking for their children to be euthanized or murdered. And according to the National Post, some Canadian doctors have said that specific and explicit requests for uh, made, made is, is that application of that, that procedure, have come from parents involving very young children. I mean, 
this entire line of thinking, if you think about it, it opens up a, a Pandora's box. It opens up the floodgates in our culture for getting completely out of control as to what what constitutes reasons, viable reasons for ending your child's life. I mean, it's unbelievable because what they think they are doing, they think they're doing it out of mercy. They think they're being merciful to their child, ending suffering and ending life-threatening, debilitating diseases or because their child has some kind of terminal illness. That's usually the way the logic goes. And now what they're saying is that suffering itself now constitutes the occasion for death. I mean, again, this comes back to the issue, how many children are suffering? When do we get to the point where we say, my child is born with a certain disability that although and otherwise, that child will go on to live a healthy life, but because I deem that that disability, let's say Down syndrome, for example, I deem that disability to be so... uh, so unpleasant. It lowers our standard of living, the quality of life. It induces depression. It creates poverty, whatever you might want to say at that point. What this article is pointing out is that a Pandora's box has been opened and already Canadians are requesting this for very young children. I mean, it's absolutely disturbing. It's absolutely appalling And when we think about euthanasia, we always have to keep our eyes on the question, is life worth it? And if it's not worth it, why not? And if it is worth it, why is life worth it to begin with? And again, um, even as we start thinking about all of the different applications of this, how it trivializes life, how it grants people the power to engage in self-murder and now infanticide of their own children based on what they think to be um, unpleasant circumstances. It makes the occasion for murdering your child circumstantial. And ultimately, it's rooted in a narcissistic and selfish motive. And listen, we have to be sensitive We need to be empathetic of the fact that maybe we're not there. I I certainly am not there by the grace of God. I'm not dealing with a situation where my child is dealing with a debilitating, maybe even painful disease that will amount to a kind of life where the quality of that life is diminished and maybe even that life will be miserable. But the question always has to come back. Why is human life or why is a pro-human future for that person, for that individual, for that child or that adult or that old person or whoever it is, why is a pro-human future the best future? Why is it that we fight for life? You see, um, the article will go on to talk about poverty as one of the reasons why some people decide to just end their lives. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, let me get to this question. Is life worth it? Yes or no? So the answer to that question is no. If you derive, it's a big if, if you derive your human worth from your human temporal condition, from a certain emotional or psychological or economical or sociological state of mind, 
or on the basis of whether or not you have a certain medical condition, then the answer is no. If these are the determining factors as to whether or not your life possesses inherent value rooted in your humanity, then the answer is no, because none of those things are transcendent. None of those things constitutes a truly foundational reason to fight for life. In fact, we can, we can even make the case that every single one of us can be thrust into a season in which we determine our lives to be less than ideal, to be overcome with circumstances that we deem to be horrid, that we deem to be uh, medically and with regards to our health overwhelming so that life becomes a drudgery and uh, self-murder or suicide, whether it's assisted suicide or else or not, or either if suicide comes at your own hands, as if that is a viable option. It's not a viable option because of what man is. But it is an option on the table if what man is is determined by our circumstances, our emotions, our, uh, you know, our financial status, and those kinds of factors. And, um, and here is the author of the article attempting to give, Frank Bergman, attempting to give some kind of pro-life, a pro-human alternative. He says, a better, more humanity-affirming strategy uh, to euthanasia, uh, uh, a euthanasia proponents should instead seek is better palliative, and palliative uh, just basically means, you know, uh, you know, therapeutic, you know, applications, solutions that don't heal the patient, but might alleviate suffering. Palliative or comfort for care for the children dictated medical professionals, uh, excuse me, dedicated medical professionals who recognize the dignity and worth of each child and a better support system for the parents to help them with the challenges to come with caring for a disabled child. Now, of course, from a Christian perspective, we would agree with this assessment to a certain degree because we, we, we agree that, in fact, you know, uh, we should be looking for ways, uh, whether it's palliative or comfort for children, therapy and medicine or what have you, but in fact, we have to determine the from a worldview perspective phrases like the worth of every child as he says here humanity affirming strategies as he says here why are these things transcendentally true valuable why are they worth it uh, what how do we determine what is a humanity affirming strategy and why we should prefer that. See, the truth is, only because we are made in the image of God, of course, if you are a Christian, that's kind of an, a simple ABC kind of answer. And you know that because we are created in the image of God, we are constituted the offspring of God, sons and daughters of God, even as, even as he is our benevolent creator, even before he is our merciful savior and becomes our heavenly father in that way, we are still his offspring. 
even as Paul says there in Acts chapter 17. Only this sort of this image endowment uh, doctrine that sees men and women created in the image of God having absolutely transcendent and divine value. But apart from that, we don't have the basis for determining that value on our own. That's the point, is that only the Christian worldview will actually answer the question as to whether or not life is worth it. As long as we do not have a Christian response to that question, the state, the secular media, psychology, philosophy, ethicists will determine that there is a path that is less than or sub-biblical so far as human worth, dignity, and value is concerned so that death will be a viable option to some. I mean, it's really dark. It's really, um, you know, it's very tragic and very sad that we're living in a time that because people lack a biblical worldview, of course, they've entered into what Charles Taylor called the eminent frame. Uh, this is what secularism is all about. It's, it's that we only live here, our lives only consist of temporal existence, and we never rise above into the eschatological or into the eternal framework and that the eternal uh, uh, frame, as it, is, as it were, where we have no sort of correspondence to spiritual and eternal things that ground our humanity as human beings created in the image of God. And because of that, we truly lack a perspective to know ourselves. Of course, Scripture is uh, Scripture teaches all over the place that we are created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the image of God, which is really amazing, but if you look at Genesis chapter 1, mm, I think it's verse 27, 26 to, 20, to, to 28. Man is created in the image of God, and what that means, of course, is not just that man has value. What that means is that man is created uh, by God, and for God. It's not just that God created us with an inherent worth, but that that worth is created with an inherent telos, purpose. Um, this is part of what is known as the eschatology of the image of God, that every single one of us is created not only by God, but for God, meaning that we will inevitably be with God. And therefore, uh, God has always, from you know, Genesis to Revelation, you see that God prizes the image because it is his very image that is inherent within man and, and, and that man is created with that image, then that image must undergo a restoration process. It must undergo a process of renewal. And so upon regeneration, that's when we see the image of God brought to its absolute fullest purpose and its grandest design as it is united to Jesus Christ, as we take upon his likeness, as we bear his image, in first in union with Christ, and then ultimately as we are glorified uh, to be with Christ, ultimately resurrected and raised with Christ, 
then we understand that the image of God is not only speaking about anthropology, but the image of God is also speaking about eschatology. And eschatology is precisely what will always be missing. This is one of the reasons why people will, even if you say things like man is created in the image of God, for secularists, for the common man, just simply being created in the image of God is not enough. You have to provide the total worldview wherein the image of God is intelligible in the first place. The image of God is not a brute fact. It's not a brute idea sort of hanging out there, dangling out there so that everybody collectively has the same concept of the image of God. Our concept of the image of God differs from all other religions. And therefore, it's only in biblical Christianity where we can understand that the image of God is not just anthropology, but it's also eschatology. And the image of God is telling us that we were created to know God. We were created to be with God. And in fact, we will go to God. Um, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas would teach this concept that man came from God in his exodus and what he said constituted an exodus coming from the hand of God in creation, but he also believed in hereditus where he returns to God in glorification. And so that, that something like that, even though I don't agree with the way that Thomas Aquinas ultimately uh, comprehended and understood and articulated the whole notion of glorification, he went too far in his concept of, of participation in the essence and things like that. But, but certainly Thomas Aquinas had an established eschatological conception of the image that made man so much more valuable than just what he did in this world. It, it, it made man participate of something transcendent, participate in something transcendent by knowing that you were returning back to God. And if you talk to people, you talk to your average person on the street, some of those people have now been reconditioned through our pagan postmodern deconstructed kind of culture in which we live, where they are no longer even interested in the idea that they belong to God. And we have to, as Christians, we have to remind them that they were created by a God that they must reckon with at the end of their lives, or as the Lord Jesus Christ returns, of course. But just this idea that they are eternal beings that they are eternal creatures, that eternity is written upon their hearts. And that, I think, is something that is sorely lacking even in the church, that we, in the evangelical, certainly in the greater evangelical church, we have trivialized eschatology because we think eschatology only has to do with issues that we fight about, uh, the timing of the, of the second coming, whether or not there's a rapture, the nature of the millennium, those kinds of things, the identity of the Antichrist, <laughs> those kinds of things. But we fail to understand that eschatology is such a bigger doctrine than that. It's just far more comprehensive, and it captures not just cosmic eschatology dealing with the end of the world, but it also deals with personal eschatology, dealing with who we are and how we will have to 
ultimately reckon with God when we die. I mean, this article is so disturbing that we've entered into this time where man has been taken down from his creaturely level and he has been brought down to the level of mere matter in motion. And once you do that, obviously, the byproduct, the fruits, and the consequences of centuries now of Darwinian evolutionary thinking, uh, even if cutting-edge futurists and cutting-edge uh, scientists and transhumanists are now talking about you know, bypassing our evolution, basically leaving evolution behind in a sense. But still, evolution, the basic idea that we are nothing more than matter in motion in a closed system with absolutely no reference to anything outside of ourselves. What we're watching in the culture of death before us is the fruits of that kind of thinking. We're watching right in front of our eyes the descent of our culture. Listen, this is just another iteration of a Romans 1 descent and what happens when a culture is given over by God to its own devices, and we know that. We understand that. Because once the West embraced humanistic philosophy, Darwinian evolution, we commenced down this road of the kind of depravity that you see in Romans chapter 1. Well, the Apostle Paul there sees that when we trade the creator-creature distinction and relation, when we trade the creator-creature distinction and relation, we embrace paganism in one form or another. This can come in the way of, of, world, of different religions. This can come in the way of personal spirituality. This can come in the way of pantheism. This can come in the way of animism. This can come in the way of Eastern spirituality, what have you, even as our culture is presently drowning in Eastern spirituality of some kind. But whatever the iteration of that paganism is, that's exactly what happens to our culture. We descend down this Romans 1 path where we go from hedonism to nihilism to barbarism. And my dear friends, is there any greater form of barbarism in our culture today than the willful, systematic, and industrial-level destruction of the lives of our own children at the hands of their own parents? Ours is a culture of which we should weep over. Ours is a culture of which we should lament because of its many God-hating ways. And we know, based on the testimony of Scripture, that when a culture goes down this path, it may be centuries before there's any recovery any light. But there again, is our culture at a place right now? Is our culture at such an advanced place where we will not have another reformation? There will not be another time where we will go from darkness to light, culturally speaking, where we will not have another revival on a mass scale. But instead, God will truly give this world over 
to its devices beneath the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Are we at that point? Only God knows. But there's one thing that we do know at this point. There's one thing we absolutely know at this point is that at the as is that uh, for the first time in human history, we now have instantaneous access, not just to Canada, but to the whole world. And now we can look as in a mirror, the mirror of technology. We can now look as in a mirror at the human race in totality to see that, in fact, in the entire human race, it seems as if our world is exactly what Scripture says it will be at the end of the age. It's interesting because I just, you know, I just did a uh, a message at the Ark Encounter with Ken Ham entitled "The Last Gospel." I talked about this. Um, uh, before, but the last gospel there uh, is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. And there you see a culture, as John is depicting, the angels are, are, are coming with their message about the eternal, the everlasting gospel. And I titled it the last gospel because it is, in fact, the last time the Greek word gospel is mentioned. And yet, at the same time, uh, when you do the exegesis there, it's a parallel back to Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 17, where you see there two pagan situations, where in Lystra, the pagans in Lystra, Lyconians, they do not have a reference to the creator-creature relation distinction. They have become completely pagan. And the Apostle Paul has to literally retell them the entire story of creation, in a sense, has to sort of situate them in a new cosmology, a new vision of cosmology to take them out of their pagan history and put them into redemptive history to get them to understand where their lives fit into the great plan and story of God in Scripture. He does the same thing in Acts chapter 17, and the parallel there is directly also found in Revelation 14. And here's the crazy part, is that in all these passages, G.K. Beale points this out in his commentaries, that the author does not expect the culture to repent. Wow. Wow. And so if John is speaking about this prophetic angel at the end of the age, just before the return of Christ, we're looking at a pagan world where the everlasting gospel is, a, in a sense, it's, it's sort of the, the final proclamation of the creator and the creature, and yet the angel does not expect, like many other times in the book of Revelation, the message is that though they have this revelation, though they have this warning, and though this, these ominous times have come upon them, the angel does not, and John, therefore, the author, does not expect for humanity to turn. And so what is our hope? What is the expectation? The hope, of course, is that we focus our eyes on our evangelistic task. What is evangelism? Evangelism, my dear friends, is a rescue mission. Evangelism is bringing the life-saving message of Jesus Christ to a dark and dying world, and so that through the gospel, God will pluck out out of every tongue, tribe, and people, and nation in the world. He will take from them his elect humanity, 
And that elect humanity will then be joined and gathered together to the church so that ultimately God will have his new humanity that he is creating in Christ Jesus. And with that, we have to be content. Even as the Apostle Paul would say, he does all things for the sake of the elect. Even knowing that the vast majority of humanity is on that easy, broad road that leads to destruction. He knows that humanity, though it may not fully, we may not see worldwide, worldwide revival. And I certainly don't believe in a final worldwide revival. I believe, in, I believe that we're heading, if anything, to a worldwide apostasy, a, a great apostasy uh, in keeping with Paul's eschatology in 2 Thessalonians. But at any rate, the hope for us is that we are God's fellow workers in his field to bring the message of the eternal gospel of his son. And it's interesting because there in Revelation chapter 14, it does end. See, it, it begins in verse 6 and 7 with what I call the unfamiliar gospel because it has nothing to do there with the cross, nothing to do there with grace and repentance and faith. But then at the very end, as the, the last angel, the third angel there, verse 12, is talking about the overcoming of the people of God, the perseverance of the people of God, we, we, we come back to the familiar gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, and that is our hope, that people will escape this culture of death through their participation in the gospel of God's Son, and that through their faith and re through repenting and putting their faith and trust in God, through Jesus Christ, they will be delivered from this present evil age. And so I think as long as we continue to focus on that, as we look at stories like this, as we consider laws like this that are being rolled out in different parts of the West and in the world, and as we see other, uh, other expressions of, you know, this sort of this postmodern, uh, Darwinian sort of materialistic worldview where man loses his soul, man loses his significance, man loses his worth. Only as we think about the biblical worldview is life worth fighting for. And so thank you guys so much for tuning in uh, to Christ and Kingdom. Uh, again, flying solo here for a few episodes and lots of exciting stuff coming to Red Grace Media. But uh, for right now, I am, there are several episodes here that I want to tackle uh, before we move on to other theological subjects. So I hope you enjoyed the program. Make sure you share, subscribe to the channel, and tune in. Don't miss a channel. Subscribe. Leave us a rating as well, if you would. And uh, uh, also make sure and check out what we are doing on redgracemedia.com and uh, getting ready to relaunch some YouTube stuff. And so just stay tuned. God bless until next time.